0: Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Wednesday, the 15th of November, We have an amazing show. We're going to be talking about an industrial venture firm for Texas, really cool, and financial education for kids. On the next show, we're going to talk about an entrepreneur that is killing stress with a cool new product and app. So locked and loaded for some great entrepreneurial education, entertainment, and hoping to get you motivated to get off the sofa and get out there. And go start an exciting business. And if you're in Texas, you're going to have a leg up if you decide to do something industrial because of our first guest. Please welcome Malcolm Peace. He is from Austin, Texas, part of the entrepreneurial boom there, working with small businesses throughout Texas to help them go to the next level technology. He focuses on buying established blue-collar industrial-type businesses and introducing some standard operating practices to help them grow and explode. Malcolm, welcome to the show.
0: How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. The name of the company is Tessera, and it's at T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A dot com. Malcolm, did I explain the company well? Give me a grade on Explaining your business.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. That was great. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be a part of the show. And so I'm honored to be able to promote what we do. I think we do it right. Um, We take over legacy type businesses. You know, imagine those that have had these businesses for, you know, longer than 10 years is our ideal, um, but have have been running them for decades um, and they don't have anybody to give it to. So we come in as that quasi son, niece, nephew, or daughter that could run the business for them and take it over and. Be that next uh, baton holder really is what it comes down to. To take a business from zero to seven figures is an incredibly difficult challenge. And we're just that next phase of the business. We try to take it from seven to eight figures. And we play in that 3 to $12 million revenue space. Um, because once you have kind of reached that, there's enough uh, meat on the bone for everyone to be able to do the things that they want to do with the business. And primarily for us... We want to take the business into the 21st century by adding low-code, no-code software and better standard operating procedures to help it scale.
1: All right. So be more precise about the type businesses. Legacy, does that mean HVAC, plumbing, uh, car repair? How am I doing?
0: Great question. Yeah, so most of the ones you just reference are business to consumer type businesses, rather than business to business type businesses. We stay away from the business to consumer. I oh, call so them the B2B Yelp
1: only. Okay, I didn't. That's get that. right. Yeah,
0: we're B two B, B two B only. Um, we try so to stay away from the So give some examples of
1: B two B legacy in that ballpark.
0: Yeah, so we do niche manufacturing companies. We do logistics. We do um, other folks like you know installing septics is another business that we've looked at. Um, one of them that we got very close on that we did a real world example is government contracted services company. So we've got ones where you know they're installing the new bridges, um, and we've got another business that we're looking at right now that do manhole restorations. And so um, very niche type businesses that again have been you know possibly vendors for. In this case, the government, or um, in other ways, they've been vendors for larger companies, and they've been able to help kind of get to that status of sustaining on their own. Maybe they have a diversified group of customers, and it's ready for them to kind of br- grow and and blow out what they're already doing um, to a next level.
1: I have a great one for you in mind here in yeah? Georgia, in Atlanta. There's a, a an amazing woman, and the reason I think of her is because I know she's sixty five ish right there, and. They repair the Atlanta runways at night when the p- traffic is a little bit slower. They use special concrete and they go in and will repair a runway and have it dry and usable within five hours in the middle of the night.
0: And that's her specialty. Uh, I can't even describe to you how exciting that sounds <laughs> <to me. laughs> It's a business that no one knows about. I mean, we got close to- That's what sticks t- out about it. It's so cool. Yep. And it's a woman. Yeah. Yep. I think that's awesome. There She's was a Hispanic, business- She's year- a too, Malcolm. Oh, uh, there you go. I mean. um, yeah. Two years ago, we looked at a business. It was a mulch manufacturing company that had a second arm to it um, that did- uh, um, uh, like remediation and, um, for fires and other things like that, but also, um, just like uh, um, erosion control and all that kind of stuff. And man, I I still, to this day, think about that business. The owner wasn't ready to sell. And I totally understand and and respect that. Um, but I, I, I would have loved to run that business. Just these businesses that people just don't think about make the world go around. I would love to be involved in them.
1: What's wrong with a really good HVAC company? Uh, Why don't you want to be in the consumer
0: space? Um, There are people that are better at it than me, and there are people that are actively putting money into it that are more capable than I am. That I'd I'd rather just play in my space, candidly. Um, You know know, the Dwyer
1: family down there in uh, Waco?
0: I don't know the Dwyer family. I'd have to look them up. But I've got a good buddy who's in the Midwest um, that has done exactly that. He took over the business from his dad, who took it over from his grandfather, and they do residential. That's all they do. And um, I'm, you know, more than impressed with the capabilities of what they've been able to do.
1: Uh, I don't remember her first name. She was on uh, Undercover Boss. Uh, The Dwyer family owns 15 nationwide brands in the HVAC pool cleaning, you know, renovation type space. But anyway, and as you said, they play in their space. They don't do consumer, I mean, don't business stuff. They do. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they're in their lane and you're yours.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different skill set. And and that's the thing, right? Like in this, in this game. And I think that that's the part that I always try to convey to anybody that's exploring buying businesses or, you know, on the verge of, you know, doing some sort of M&A with the business that they already own. Don't, don't overestimate your ability to you know, take on something that's not in your wheelhouse. And so we try, we try to be very specific. So we exclusively look at businesses in Texas, although that would have been awesome to buy the business in Atlanta. We exclusively look at businesses in Texas because it is, I think, the 10th largest economy in the world at this point. Um, and there's just so much opportunity for folks like the lady you just mentioned that have been running these businesses for a long time that need an exit. And they need some way to transition out. And we try to be that solution to them.
1: All right. Let's go and have a conversation with that guy. You approach them and you're, oh, I'm really impressed with your septic business selling to developers. That's a great idea. Great niche to only sell to developers. Uh, You're doing 3 million a year in revenue, taking home $300,000, $400,000, 300 dollars $400,000, your business is worth five times that. It's worth $2.5 The guy goes, what? F you, my business is worth $10 million if it's worth a penny.
0: How's my play acting, Malcolm? Uh, that, that sounds like a conversation I've probably had uh, 10 or a dozen times in the last few months. <laughs> um, that is fairly accurate. Everyone overestimates what their business is worth. Um, one thing that I would say that you got some on those numbers is the margins tend to be a lot better than that in some of these niche businesses. And they usually have taken over taken home, sorry, some really good money over the last few years. and so in in some cases, they've taken home, you know we we look at a minimum of seven hundred and fifty thousand as kind of our threshold. We've looked at lower down to five hundred at times. Um, but we like to play in the space from seven fifty to one point two five. Um, take home and um, th- that's net profit to the owner. Free cash flow is a really important term we like to talk about. What was the free cash flow of the business, not what you think that you you know ultimately got out of it. Um, and so you know all that to be said. Um, yeah, a lot of business owners with that in mind, they look at it and say, "Well, heck, I've been doing so great for the last few years. Why do you think my business is only worth this?" And I say. You know, there's a risk component that goes into this. If I go buy your business, and there's a lot of folks doing this talking about the HVAC, you know, space, there's folks that are buying these businesses at 8x multiples, and there's a huge risk component that happens there. And I don't think the alignment of what we're trying to do with the business and what the owner potentially wants from their business, which is to carry on with the name, to carry on with, you know, the employees that they already have, those things can't necessarily work. And and there's other folks that differ with me on this opinion, but if you buy too high of a price in this space, the likelihood of the business being successful in the next five years is very, very low in my opinion.
1: Well, what do they say? You make your money when you
0: buy, not when you sell. I would, I would absolutely agree with that, but I want to make it a win, right? I want that um, uh, owner to walk away thinking, man, I got a good deal out of it. And most of the time that good deal to them is that they know they've been, the business has been entrusted to somebody that could ultimately, you know, really take care of it.
1: And that's probably what they care about a lot. If I built a business and was selling it, I would, you know, the way it was going to be treated would manage or matter a lot to me. So Malcolm, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, where'd you get the money to do this business? How did the business get started? Where'd the idea come from? Was this a Darden business plan going awry? (laughs) Tell us the history behind this, please.
0: Yeah. Great question. Um, I don't think I'm recreating the wheel whatsoever. There's folks doing this all over the country. Um,
1: there's nothing I wrong think, with that in our yeah. category. It Right here, you get credit for stealing, copying, and borrowing. We think that's cool. So exactly, that these are smart. Exactly. You did not have to look very far.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of folks even already doing It'd be better if you it stole the it from space. a Duke
1: student. If like the Duke there student you know, had the business plan and you stole it from them, that'd be even better.
0: Yeah, I was honored. I actually got to speak at a conference at Duke a couple months back. Um, it was really honored because I got to speak about what does it look like to go out and do this. Um, and in the crowd was one of my investors, so it was really you know coming full circle of sorts um, to be able to sit there and, and to be able to communicate. And him coming up, coming up to me, he's actually based in Atlanta. Um, came came up to me and just you know patted me on the shoulder and be like, "Thank you for saying it how it really is, and, and encouraging people to just go get after it." So um, you know, truth, truth be told, we buy businesses on a deal by deal basis. And so, um, we don't, we don't raise a big fund. Um, I think fund structures work for some folks. They don't work for what we're trying to do necessarily. Um, though we may change that in the future. We always, you know, I, I do get to run the ship a little bit. So as a result, um, we may change course at some point, but we raise capital on a deal by deal basis. And it's a lot of relationships with folks that are already business owners, um, that, uh, want to diversify what they're doing, want to diversify what they're exposed to, um, and so, a lot of them have, you know, either run business owner uh, businesses in the past, or they're current business owners, and they want to be a part of. You know what we're doing, holding on to these businesses long term, p- get paid a dividend after a year after we stabilize everything, and they want some mailbox money, and they want to know that it's entrusted to, to folks that are really trying to do it differently and improve the process and not just flip it. We really do have an intention to never sell these businesses. And so it changes the conversation. In some cases, there's some investors that that doesn't fit their investment profile. And so going through the rounds of communicating that over and over and over again, here's my software stack. Here's what we're going to implement. Here's my 100-day plan. Here are all the tools that we're going to use and how we're going to stitch it all together. Here's who goes in first. Here's how we communicate org structures and charts and all this kind of stuff. Communicating that time and time again. You know, People come out of the woodwork of like, yeah, I would love to be a part of what you're doing. So this is what we do on a continuous basis.
1: But Where did the idea come from?
0: I was standing with a guy I was a part of another partnership. We were buying hospitality, food and beverage businesses. I was standing with the guy that was going to bring our roll off dumpster for our event venue that we were building. And I just happened to strike up a conversation with him about like what he's gonna do after he had done with, he was done with the business. And he said, I don't have a plan. And I was like, wow, you're 60 years old. You don't have a plan. I hear, I heard about this. There's a, there's a term sometimes used in our space called the silver tsunami. Um, it's all these retiring baby boomers that have all these businesses. They have no you know, son, niece, nephew, or daughter that want to go take it over. And here's a guy in front of me that fits that profile exactly. Um, and I said to him with a bit of a hesitation in my voice, could I buy your business? And uh, it didn't work out, but it was a moment where I was like, wait a second, like I'm already doing everything previously, just in a different sort of partnership let's just go do this for myself. And the stars kind of aligned and started coming together over time.
1: All right. Interesting. And what did the, and how long you been doing it now? Three years. And so what, two deals a year, something like
0: that. Uh, that's our, that's our goal. It's not always achievable, <laughs> but let's, let's give some perspective on it. You know, when we start, started getting engaging with different business owners, there was a business that hopefully comes full circle this at the end of this year, Um, but we started talking with this business, um, in the summer of 2020 and we're now at the discussion, true discussion tables of terms and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, it takes a long time in some cases I would call, you know, 40% of our deals come through kind of a broker of some sort or a small investment bank. And then 60% come from us, just proprietary relationships, people that we meet, those that are already interacting with business owners, wealth advisors, lawyers, tax advisors, all these folks interact with them a lot. And so they're kind of ears to the ground for us to send us deals. And just like you said, like in this case, whimsical moments happen where someone says, oh, I have this business that so-and-so doesn't want to run. Would you be interested in taking a look at it? yeah, I'm happy to jump on a call and nine times out of 10, it's a, you know, informative moment of like, Hey, you know, I think your business is worthwhile. This is why this is how we would run it. This is what you need to look for in a buyer Um, and try to give them as much information as possible. And then we follow up a few weeks later and say, you know, Hey, did you enjoy the conversation? We'd still be interested in possibly being the buyer for your business. Why don't we have a conversation? So that's the long game we play. We have systems and processes that send out automations to business owners and check in with them from time to time, try to stay engaged because we recognize that our sales cycle might take a few years.
1: Very well could. Yes. Or maybe you'll get lucky and he'll like die along the way and then you'll get a call from the widow and she'll be in distress.
0: That's usually what happens candidly. Um, so we have, we have what we call the three D's um, death, divorce, and disinterest. They are the highest motivators for a business owner to get out of their business. They have something else they want to do. They're in, they're hitting a moment in life, like divorce, that's just forcing them to have to change course or they're reaching death or someone did die. And you know, as morbid as that sounds, the truth is, is that those are the moments where we are excited to play in because we get to be that relief that they're looking for that they didn't have planned for. Um, And and unfortunate circumstances, you know, often bring the best outcomes for everybody involved because they don't have to stress out or their son or daughter that was never part of the business, had no interest in being a part of the business or the widow in this case, um, you know, doesn't want to be in the business. We can really be that, you know, comforting moment of like, hey, we will take care of this. You can move on with your life in a way that you feel is honoring to that person.
1: What happened to your South African accent?
0: <laughs> so, so summary is, um, I am not the best of the accent, but I, I've been talking for, from time to time. Um, my family moved here and I was born actually six months after they moved here. So I'm a first ah, generation okay. American. Yeah. Not born, not born in South Africa. Um, first generation American. I was actually watching a documentary this morning about South Africa and, and just grateful. My dad traveled back for his 50th high school anniversary a couple months back um, and you know, we're just remissing about, you know, who we got to see, what do got to do? My cousins, my aunts, everybody, they got to spend time with there. And it's, it's a place that's unfortunately not in good s- status, I would say. And so, um, you know, candidly, I, I'm, I feel incredibly grateful every day that I get to be in Austin, Texas. And so this is where my family ended up and they moved here first and were able to kind of set a new life for me. Um, but I feel un- connection to the country in a lot of ways. And so we used to travel back every other year. Um, and I haven't been back in a few years now because of COVID primarily, but, um, you know, I'm hoping to take the kids next summer is, is really the plan for my cousin's wedding.
1: One of my good friends here in Atlanta is also South African and I've been there, I think two or three times nice. and always enjoyed it. Your, the company, your company name is taken from a South African mountain, isn't it? Or is it- That's right. So
0: it's actually the the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe. So my great grandfather owned seventy thousand acres at the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe. He owned one of the largest dairy and cattle producing farms um, in the area and employed hundreds of people. And Mount Sitsera was that place, and the house sitting on it, and all the farmland and all the vegetation that he built and grew. Um, but that was at the border, like I said, of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, and then Mozambique went through their own civil war, as well as you know used to be Rhodesia. Now Zimbabwe um, went through their own challenges. So both of my parents were born in Zimbabwe and then moved down to South Africa uh, soon after that. So South, you know, South Africa, um, but Southern Africa really is, is where the roots are. I have cousins in Botswana and all over the place.
1: Interesting. I was there the first time and we had a bus driver that was with us for the whole week. I was with a group of students and he was smart. The bus driver was good. And finally we were like, you know, what's your background? And he's like, you know, I got laid off from my prior job because of political things and mm. now I'm driving buses for a living. And I was like, well, what was your prior job? And his prior job was president and CEO of IBM Africa. Wow. And now he was driving buses for a living. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But They're anyway, we started on the challenges. They're, that country has many challenges ahead, unfortunately. My yes. brother, I wish I could have. My brother, I don't know where I was, but my brother went to attend the World Cup when it was there in 2010. And I think that was its peak for the last few years um, of, of really like good economic standing and economic opinion of, from many folks. And it's just been unfortunate to watch the country kind of go where it's going. So. Um, yeah, I hope it changes.
1: As a matter of fact, you should buy my South African friends business. He does real estate developers, like people who build apartment buildings. He's their tile guy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He's a, he's a,
0: their vendor for like kind of large quantity vending.
1: Yeah. For tile for, you know, for the, uh, mostly for the marble, the kitchen countertop, you know, the, the island, the waterfall marble that's so popular and trendy now. Yeah. Uh, All of that stuff. Well, let's connect. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. But he's in here. He's a Georgian company,
0: not Texan. So well, I've got a few people in Georgia that can run a business well. So maybe there's a connection we can make and make that happen. That would be great. What do you teach
1: or what new things you called it your software stack? Do you implement when you purchase? What are the things you drop in?
0: So I believe that most of these businesses, they are what I would call centralized business and they're a business, and this is not anything revolutionary. They're a business that's centered around the business owner. It's a different skill set to take a business from zero to seven figures than it is to take it from seven to eight. And most often or not, when you're going from zero to seven, you are in the middle of the business. And a business owner struggles, especially when you're making good money, like all credit to them. When you're walking away with, you know, $750,000 $750,000 at the end of the year, why change what you're doing um, after grinding for the last few years? Like, why, why would you do that? I can definitely understand. But it takes a different skill set to go from 7 to 10. And so as a result, that business owner has to pivot. And often they struggle to do that for many different reasons. And so we take software and implement it as if it's taking over the CEO's role on just management of communication among different aspects of the business. And so we stitched together reporting and data analyzation around sales, to back office, to QuickBooks accounting, to our, our ERP system, to you know employee per, uh, production, to our KPIs on employee performance, all that kind of stuff gets stitched together because it's all in different places and there's different softwares that can be best used for that. We bring it back into how do we analyze it and do reports. I have mandatory reports. We hire a bunch of VAs out of the Philippines, and they are just report people for me, essentially. And so they stitch together a bunch of reports every single week to see progress and and, and performance. And so um, that's that's our primary one. And, And as you can hear in some of those things, it's back office. It's kind of an ERP system from a management you know production management side of things, and then it's really sales is a big part of it. So in the 100 day you know rollout, I'm pretty aggressive on what's our sales game plan on what's going on here, and where can we pull data to help understand who is further down from previous quoting, who's further down the funnel so we can go after them as soon as possible to stabilize sales when we make this transition.
1: Very interesting. I grew a business from zero to about 12 million and the thing that struck me was that my role in the business changed every time we went to one of those uh revenue yep. in uh i don't know plateaus you know we kind of plateaued at three That's and right. again at nine we just couldn't move anymore until we broke through something and yep. the first year I was at the business every single day met every single customer the second year I met a third. It was by the third year I had to make the change. I didn't leave the office once. And didn't yep. met, I met zero customers the third year. Yeah. And then I had to learn how to get back into it in a different way so that I was meeting enough customers so that the customer body felt like that we were still involved. And it yeah. became kind of a where's Waldo thing. I had 89 locations mm-hmm. and they would gamble what location I would walk into next. You know? <laughs> um, Interesting. It was an interesting, uh, interesting business. We were, uh, the first people to sort of take summer camp and do uh-huh. it at a large level. We had 89 locations running simultaneously. Wow. No one had ever done that before. And yeah. No one may ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it involved a lot of Dallas people, by the way, the cheerleading company out of Dallas. Neat. Uh, Anyway, they were the only people bigger than us. That's something everyone needs to know. There always need to be someone bigger than you. So there's someone to sell to.
0: Yep. That's right. That's right. Or that they've proven that it can scale up to that extent. I think is also the other thing too, is if there's no, if you're trying to lead the pack, you're going to go through a lot of cash burn to get there because you're ultimately figuring it out along the way. Um, and if there's someone ahead of you, you're not recreating the wheel as much. And there's some mitigated risk from that perspective.
1: Best advice for a 12-year-old tennis player.
0: Prepare to put in lots of hours over a long period of time. <laughs> uh, I think that's the best advice. Have a, you know, I think that I think tennis taught me a lot about just business and vice versa, and I think one of the big things it taught me about is being able to do something over a long period of time, sustain it, knowing that your game plan's good enough. Um, I, I had a mentor for a period of time. And he used to tell me in multiple aspects of my life, um, life is a two out of three set match. You can lose the first set, but you still can win. And so be prepared to endure. And there's sometimes you might have to pivot, but even though you lost the first set doesn't mean that you were doing it incorrectly. It just may have not been the right time for you to win. And so being able to endure over a long period of time and recognizing what's happening in those moments was you know, invaluable to me to be able to learn from a tennis perspective and competitive side.
1: Great advice and a great line. We will tweet that out. Malcolm peace. How do we find out more invest with you and cetera find out, uh, follow you online, all that stuff, please.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, so we, we have three prongs that we focus on. We, we buy businesses, we raise capital. And then we bring in operators into the deals that we do. And so we're always working on three of those three those three things at all times. Um, so anybody can get involved in any of those, whether it be a business owner that's looking to transition out of their business in Texas. Um, a, if you want to be a part of what we're doing from a raising capital side of things, um, and, and be a part of the deals, we have a minimum check size of $100,000 It helps us um, you know, be, in part, be, be a partner with those that are really wanting to be involved in what we're doing. And then finally, um, those that want to operate businesses and want to be in Texas for a long period of time, we love um, to bring people into what we're doing. And so, um, anybody can get involved in any of that. Um, you can find us at sitsera.com. It's spelled T S E T S E R R A. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, Malcolm peace. Feel free to look us up. Sitsera growth partners. Um, and love to be able to chat with anybody.
1: Malcolm. Great story. Great uh, interview. You've done really well. It's a cool story. And thanks for being with us to share
0: it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And we'll be right back. next guest i am uh really in tune with her topic and what she's doing i think this is some great stuff please welcome maya Korbick to the show she has not had an easy life uh, i don't know if that's I don't know if that's a fair statement, but she grew up in war-torn Bosnia and had to come to the United States. Family lost everything, had two suitcases and a 100 bucks when she got to America at the age of 15. Lived in government shelters and had to take two part-time jobs. But then it's amazing, the American dream. She is now a very successful CPA, CFO, tax accountant, auditor. And for the last 11 years, one of her passions has been raising financially well-educated kids. She has been teaching a kid's curriculum and now has a new book called From Piggy Banks to Stocks, The Ultimate Guide for a Young Investor. Maya Korbick, welcome. How are you doing?
2: Hello. Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. First of all, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, And I'm doing great. I'm just really, really uh, happy to be talking about teaching kids about money, teaching kids about investing. Uh, That's my passion. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. You're a mother yourself, right? How did you get involved in this? Was it because of your children?
2: Uh, Well, it was actually, it started off really because of my, some of my clients, Um, I used to have, because I'm a CPA, I used to sometimes work with clients one-on-one, and I actually had some clients who were making really good income, like six-figure income, and I'm talking, this is 11 years ago, you know, Um, and some of them really had nothing to show for it, some of them were very stressed over money, Uh, they were not sleeping properly at night, Um, And, you know, I started thinking about why is this happening? Can we educate these people? I also realized that even though I would give them certain advice, they agreed with me and it was um, important to follow that advice, but they wouldn't necessarily follow it. And the more and more I thought about it, I realized that it's probably because um, they already had certain money habits that were harder to change because they were adults. So I thought, what if we could actually teach kids about money when they're younger and instill these good habits um, in them. And hopefully by the time they're adults, these habits become second nature to them. They say that 95% of what we do, we do on autopilot. So, you know, I was thinking like, what if we teach our kids to save by paying themselves first, Um, you know, this is something they can do on their way to adulthood. That just means that they wouldn't be spending all of their paychecks as soon as they get them. But, you know, they would be actually paying themselves for saving some money than investing. Um, So that's kind of how it all started. And my kids were very little at the time. I only had a a six and a four year old. They were only six and four years old. Um, And I started asking them some questions about money. And I realized that they did not know much about money. Um, So those two things kind of uh, propelled me on this journey. And um, what that's were the questions you asked your born. kids,
1: Maya? Uh, well,
2: I think actually it wasn't, it was actually my son that made a comment. Um, he told me, at that time I was driving a Jeep Cherokee, and my son was six years old. And one time he made a comment, he said, You know, you really need to get a new car. <laughs> and I said, Why? And he's like, Because your car sucks it's not a nice looking car. (laughs) And I thought, well, what kind of car should I get? And he was talking about a Ferrari. And then I asked him, you know, how much Ferraris cost? And I I realized at that time that um, he had no concept of prices or how much things cost, that a Ferrari is a lot more expensive than a Jeep Cherokee that actually was fully paid for. um, And I was driving without having to, you know, make car payments. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of like things like that, you know, he, he, they would make comments and then I would follow up with questions and we would have a very interesting discussion. Uh,
1: that is fascinating and scary. My kids have told me the same thing. So how do we start at that age teaching them about money and what do we tell them? And I try to tell them how many hours I have to work to pay for their tennis lessons. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we, how do we do it at that age?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, age, I I would say like age four or five is uh, even six is perfect age to start. Um, I have gone to schools and I have taught workshops in schools and at that age, um, you know, first of all, you have to teach age appropriate topics and you have to, uh, when you speak to the kids, um, you almost have to imagine yourself being, their age and think of it like, okay, how would their peers talk to them? How would they explain something? So that's the way you would be explaining things. Um, But when it comes to topics, you, you know, you want to start off with easy topics and then build upon those once you realize that they've grasped those concepts. So one of the topics that I teach that age group is very basic Uh, It's understanding the difference between needs and wants. Um, And kindergartens, they get that. They understand that needs are the things we need for survival, such as, you know, food, water, shelter. Um, They also understand that wants are candy, toys. Like, we don't need those for survival. They're just fun to have. Um, I don't really go into discussion of, I call those, like, gray needs and wants, meaning, like, designer clothes. Uh, kindergartners understand that we all need clothes, but at that age, they don't understand the designer code. So that's the concept that maybe I would introduce to like, uh, kids in grade four or five, six, definitely grade six. Um, but you know, with these younger kids, we keep it very, very simple. Um, and you know, it's like, uh, needs and wants seems like, you know, such a basic topic and, um, kids get it, but I've also Uh, learned that if we don't teach this at a very young age, I have seen adults that struggle with this concept, you know, putting needs first over wants. So this is definitely something that, you know, we want to teach our children, that we want to kind of um, gently gently um, kind of hammering their brains <laughs> because um, one thing I wanted to mention though, is it's really important not to um, make these lessons heavy. And, you know, for parents, you will be repeating some of these lessons over and over and over again. And eventually they will sink in. Uh, just don't give up and, you know, don't get discouraged. It's kind of like teaching them about manners or to wash their hands every time they come in into the house, you know? Um, so it's, it's just one of those things. Yeah.
1: All right. And when do you start giving them an allowance or do you give allowance? What are your thoughts on giving children money through gifts or through chores?
2: So uh, that's very, thank you for bringing that up. Um, That's actually, over the last 11 years, uh, what I have realized is that parents are very much divided on this issue. And um, I believe that there is no right answer. I do believe that every family needs to do what's right for them. Uh, When it comes to money, we need to teach our children uh, about money, based on our personal values. It's kind of like parenting. We don't all parent the same way. We parent based on our family values. So when it comes to allowance, there are really four different allowance methods. And I strongly encourage parents to choose one that resonates best with them. And even if they choose that one and it doesn't work, um, then they can choose another one or try it. Um, and, you know, before I even tell you, is it okay if I tell you what the four allowance methods are? I'm assuming everyone yes, please, know that. please. Yes, okay, so I'll just do like a quick one-on-one allowance uh, lesson here. So um, when you think of allowance, don't think of it as a gift, okay? A lot of times we think when somebody's giving us money, we think of it as a gift. Think of allowance as a teaching tool, okay? So it's not a gift, it's a teaching tool. Why is it a teaching tool? It's a teaching tool because um, it helps our kids learn how to manage money when the stakes are low and dollar amounts are low. So um, it's better to teach our kids, to have our kids um, learn about money now uh, rather than when they, let's say, graduate from college and maybe they have a six-figure salary. At that time, the dollar values are higher, the stakes are higher. So if we never thought about money, they can actually make some significant mistakes. Um, And so if we give our kids allowance now even if they make mistakes, it's okay. We want them to make mistakes. We want them to learn from those mistakes. It's not a big deal if they, you know, misspent 20 bucks or even if it's a 50 bucks, okay? it's You know, it's kind of hard as a parent to watch them make certain decisions, but, um, you know, that is the point of allowance. Now, there is, as I said, there are four different types of allowance methods. um, And the idea behind them is like, you know, you are transferring the money. Um, sorry, the responsibility of deciding what to do with money from you onto them. But you're not just giving them money. Like you have to implement certain rules, and we can just we can talk about that in a moment. But um, when you are transferring this money from you onto them, they're the ones deciding. Do I want to buy that toy? Do I want to buy that candy? But once that toy and candy is bought, there is no more money left. So um, they have to be, and they also know how much money they have left over. Whereas when you are buying things, they have no idea how much money is in your bank account. So that's why they keep pressuring you and asking you maybe, you know, to buy them that next toy or that candy. So when it comes to allowance methods, um, the first one is allowance tied to chores. Parents who support this allowance method, uh, they want their kids to learn that the value of hard work, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. You get rewarded for your work. And, you know, um, if you obviously do not do your chores, you don't get paid. The second allowance uh, method is allowance method not tied to chores. And the parents who support this allowance method, they believe that a child should be doing chores and contributing to the household as a contributing member of that family unit. They believe that, you know, when the child grows up, nobody's going to pay them to make their own bed to set the table for dinner, or to take the trash out. So they just want to teach their child uh, these responsibilities separately from money. And if they don't do these responsibilities, they will take away things like play dates, uh, they will take away uh, maybe video games or screen time, but the money stays, the allowance stays because the allowance is the teaching tool. Now, there's a third method, allowance method, which is the hybrid method. It's kind of the mix of the first two, where um, these parents actually give a certain amount of money to their children um, every week or every two weeks. Uh, But kids also have the opportunity to earn additional money through some tasks. And these could be tasks that maybe you would pay somebody else to do, like wash your car. So instead of, you know, going to a car wash, you would pay your child to do that for you. Um, And then the fourth allowance method is not giving allowance at all because there are parents that really believe they should not be giving allowance at all, and that's okay. Um, However, with those parents, I strongly encourage them to find opportunities when their children um, can manage money. So an example would be, you know, uh, having your child in charge of their birthday birthday budget. Uh, and so when they're little, you can help them with the budget. You can show them how the budgeting process works. But as they get older, they will be in charge of that birthday budget or let's say even back to school shopping budget. Um, and that way they get some practice with that money. And there's so much more to be said about allowance. But anyway, that's like allowance 101.
1: It is hard. And uh, it's one of the things my family has struggled with. But you know, it, it seems that the less we talk about it, the less they talk about it, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We, we've almost gotten to a point. We don't pay it anymore because they never ask. And mm-hmm. I just keep telling them tennis lessons, you know? And I think that they know that their lessons are expensive and that they're a treat that other kids don't get that. And so
2: I think they want supposed to
1: be quiet about it.
2: <laughs> How old are they? Uh, I have twenty six, twenty three, twelve, and
1: eight. Okay, so this is the twelve and the eight year olds that are yep. getting the
2: ten 10- yep. list. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know. Um, I always also who the hell would pay
1: an allowance to, to a twenty three year old?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there are parents out there. <laughs> Yeah, there are parents out there that do actually still support their children. And and that's the whole point of teaching them about money is that, you know, we don't want to be supporting them their whole lives, right? Like, I mean, we want to help out when we can, but we don't want them to be completely reliant on us, right?
1: Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, What about college? What are your thoughts on college debt, Uh, paying for school, all of that?
2: Um, well, I think, you know, I think things have changed a lot over the years. Um, I know that when I was younger and the advice I got was, you know, go to school, get good grades, um, you know, get into the best university, um, get, you know, get good grades, get, you know, a job with the best employer possible and work until you're 65. I don't think that works anymore. Um, I do have, as I said, I have two children, they're 16 and 14 now, and, I mean, my 16-year-old, he wants to become an engineer. Um, I think, you know, our, we need to be careful not to get ourselves in debt for degrees that are not going to provide us with a living. Like, I do believe that our children um, should be able, if, they, if they're going to take on debt, I think that they should go for degrees that will help them pay for that debt and then some, right, that they can actually earn even more money. Um, I have seen people, and because I'm a CPA and I have done taxes for people, and this is something that really, really shocked me. And I'm talking about, I've seen this over the last 20 years, Um there are people that don't go to university and I have seen them make more money than people that go to university or college. And uh, they, they have their own businesses and they write off uh, certain expenses for taxes. Um, They pay less in taxes. They have more control over their lives and their schedules. And uh, but they never went to university they, they're an apprentice, like I've seen, I've seen plumbers do that, I've seen hairstylists do that, like one of them was my own hairstylist, um, she worked from home, and she was available for her kids, she was available for, you know, drop-off, and the pickup from school, uh, she set her own schedule, she was making really good money, so um, I just don't think that um, university or college education is for everybody. Um, yeah.
1: Yes, I agree. And I'm not a fan of college debt either. I would go to Mm -hmm. an inferior school to save money. So, uh, my two kids graduated with no debt. And so I was happy with that. But both of them took scholarships and went to state schools so that they could, you know, have cheaper tuitions, all of that. And I think that you have to make compromises. And I'm just not willing to pay for college, especially if they want to get a a silly degree on something that doesn't make sense to me. So. Right. What about actually investing? When should a child buy their first stock and how do we explain what that is to a kid of that age? When do you think they should know what the stock market is?
2: Um, you know what? they can um I really do believe that money and talking about money should not be taboo. Um, I do firmly believe that you know, as long as parents, well, first of all, parents really need to educate themselves when it comes to investing before they can educate their kids, right? Um, but so there's two components, you know, or actually, there are two parts or two part answers to the question that you just asked me. So the first one is, um, for any parents that are that have a baby on the way, um, you know, I always encourage them strongly to start investing for that child as soon as that child is born. Um, you know, they can open up an account, and you don't really. The sooner you start investing. Um, you really don't need to invest a lot of money for that money to become, to grow into something bigger. And it's simple math, right? It's compound interest. And a lot of times, you know, people freak out when I start talking about math, but this part of math is really simple. Like the famous, one of the famous uh, investors, Peter Lynch said, as long as you have completed grade four math, you should be able to learn how to invest. So, um, so that's one part, you know, if we can start investing on our kids behalf, as soon as they're born, they won't obviously at that age. They don't. They don't even know this is happening for them. But when they become four, five, six years old, we can start talking about investing in a way that um, you know teaches them that they don't they don't necessarily only need to be a consumer. That they can be an investor. And what that means is that um, you know maybe they want, let's say, a toy or um, from a particular store. Well, uh, they don't necessarily just need to be consumers and buy that store, uh, sorry, toy from that store, but they can also be investors. Um, And I'm just going to give you an example here. And the stock that I talk about doesn't necessarily mean that I'm endorsing those or, you know, I really think everybody should do their own due diligence and figure out what they're going to invest in. But this is just an example. Let's say you have a teenager and, you know, uh, they're using iPhone, they're using iPad, they have the Apple Watch. Well, they're using a lot of Apple products. So instead of just being on that, that, that consumer, why also not invest in Apple as a company? Okay, so we can teach them that they can actually own uh, shares of Apple. We can also, you know, for younger kids, we can teach them that they can own shares of Disney, uh, instead of just, you know, going to Disneyland or Disney World or buying, like, Disney products and, and so on. So, um, you know, and, and the way to do that is, um, you know, we can actually invest on their behalf by, um, you know, buying one share of stock, let's say, of Disney or Apple for their birthday in addition to, let's say, another birthday present, Or it could be buying a share of a company. Uh, for, as part of their Christmas gift. And, um, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of different ways to go about it, but it's just normalizing investing for our children, making it seem like, you know, this is just something we do. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know, we brush our teeth. We we also invest. Um, it's not a big deal, but I think the big part of it is just, educating ourselves and understanding how it works. And it's not as complex as it may seem. Um, people are really intimidated by it, but it's just investment jargon that really, really confuses people.
1: My 12 year old son, I've mentioned that he takes a lot of tennis lessons. He's a a great player. He's very addicted to the sport. And we're thinking of buying him a tennis racket stringing machine. Christmas. They're about seven hundred bucks, and having him start a tennis stringing business because he breaks rackets or the strings frequently, and so we're tired of paying for him. But he might as well do it for other people too. What do you think of that? Uh, he's he likes the I idea. love it. <laughs> what are your What are your thoughts?
2: I I just I got so excited I interrupted you there. I just love it. I think it's great. I mean, you're turning a need into something more than that. You're teaching him how to be entrepreneurial. Um, And, you know, I I absolutely love when parents encourage their children to become entrepreneurial because, and it's not just about money and the fact that that machine, uh, you know, him using that machine to, to string rackets for other people, it may eventually end up paying for the cost of that machine. But it's also all the skills that he's going to learn along the way. Uh, You know, the social aspect of it, the networking, uh, marketing and selling and figuring out price points and, you know, how much his profit is by the time he buys that string, uh, you know, so he can do it for people. um, He's going to learn how to prioritize his time and how to schedule his time properly. I just think it's wonderful. I, I really strongly encourage all parents to do that.
1: All right, well, maybe we'll do it then. We'll call it the Maya. <laughs> and what about getting a job? When should we, w- At what age should a kid have his first job?
2: You know what? Um, I think that depends. Um, again, family to family, whatever they feel comfortable with. Um, I know some of the families that have participated in my programs, uh, they had children as young as eight years of age do certain things um, not necessarily jobs but it was more like entrepreneurship things um, I had one family um, and they told me what this girl, little girl was doing is she would go around the neighborhood collect beer cans and beer bottles and she would return them or she would recycle them and get paid for it and everybody in the neighborhood knew that's what she was doing and originally started off because she was uh, trying to save up some money for a laptop but then it just continues, like she's been doing it for years. So I think it depends on when your child is ready, when your child wants to do that. I know that some parents are not really big on that because they want their kids to focus on their sports and getting good grades. Uh, so some kids may be extremely, extremely busy and there may be no time for that because they're trying to get into top schools, top colleges. Or um, So I, I think it's really... Um, up to each family, but I think, um, the parents need to sit down with the, I guess the child and decide, um, you know, whether or not they want, you know, when is the right time for that child to, to get a job, to learn those skills. Um, and maybe even in the summertime, you know, when the kids are off from school, maybe they have more available time. Maybe it's worth getting a job for a couple of months. And then when the school starts again, you know, putting that job on pause and you know, going back to the sports and the school. Uh, but I do believe that those skills, when kids work, that um, they are really important to prepare them for the adulthood, for working in the real workforce, you know, when they become, when, when, you know, when they become of age.
1: Maya, how do we find out more? Get a copy of the book, follow you online, all of that, please.
2: Yeah, so I actually have a very uh, big Instagram account. Um, I have about 120,000 followers, so it's pretty big. So you can follow me there. There are some impersonators, so just make sure you don't follow a scammer. I do have a blue, blue check mark next to my name. Um, uh, but the Instagram handle is teach.kids.money so that's Um, teach.kids.money my book is as I said um, it's actually coming out and it's on Amazon and you can actually if you just pull up my name uh, which is spelled M-A-Y-A and the last name is Corbic so C as in Charlie O-R as in Robert B as in Bob I-C as in Charlie so Maya Corbic or piggy banks the stocks uh, the book is there you can actually uh, find the book there but yeah if you have any questions feel free to message me on instagram i try to answer back to everybody Um, and i'm just excited uh, for anybody who joins me and my community on this journey i think it's really important for us to educate our kids about money
1: i could not agree more maya thank you so much for being with us great stuff uh, and really appreciate it thank you
2: so much for having me on the show. And
1: we're out of time, but you know what? We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Have a great day. Bye now.